on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Me, I'm on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Greetings, dear listener. This is Ian McKenzie, founder and host of The Mythic Masculine podcast. Normally at this part, I have a quote from the episode featured to entice you to listen to the entire thing. Like this. Can you wonder in such a way that you 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 arrive at surprising um, in surprising places, right? And and hopefully even you know thoughts you've never thought before, or things you've never spoken before. And that to me is like that's the most exciting thing. And I feel like you know when when in conversations if we get to those places, I'm astounded. Uh, you know that that that's something that that is in the collaboration between myself and the other. From there, I would kick off with the epic opening music and describe what the show is about. Like this. What does it mean to be a man today? I had no effing idea. So I decided to invite a bunch of interesting people I know to share their thoughts and reflections on this topic. It's been hugely satisfying for me, and based on the feedback, for many listeners as well. And so now, one year later, I thought to record this anniversary episode to share about the journey of the Mythic Masculine. And rather than be a solo cast, I invited my newish friend, Elisa Spring, to conduct the conversation, with some questions gathered from members of the Mythic Masculine Network. In our conversation today, we explore the intersection of Eros, Emergence, and Village, the problem with personal growth, the poverty of location independence, and how to intentionally pollinate the noosphere, that is, the realm of interconnected consciousness that unites us all. Before we begin, I wish to offer huge gratitude to my Patreon supporters, who contribute each month to make this possible. If you're stirred and inspired by this podcast, please consider coming on board. Supporters get access to exclusive bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes perks. Visit themythicmasculine.com and click Become a Supporter to learn more. And now, enjoy this one-year anniversary episode of The Mythic Masculine. Yeah, the song is super mythic, and I got some extra time, so I'm gonna let it play out and make it seem more mythic. Yeah, the mythic masculine. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And I know that you usually start the Mythic Masculine podcast with an invitation to share a bit about where um, each of the people are. And so I'd love to offer that on my end first and uh, extend the invitation to you. And so I am um, Elisa Spring, and I live on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. And here I've been sitting in some balmy weather. So outside we do have a light breeze, which is a welcomed uh, energy that when it comes, the as we say, is um, makani. When it arrives, we're grateful. And so there's a bit of that and also um, transitioning into hopefully feeling some winter and some cold cold water to jump into or colder. <laughs> um, so I'm sitting here looking outside, seeing uh, a palm tree in my front yard and 
uh, the dancing of tea leaves outside of my window as we meet. Mm. And so where are you, Ian? Mm -hmm. Well, I am currently in this uh, little hut, affectionately called the cabana. Uh, It's on some friends land here on one of the Gulf islands that I call home. This area is also known as the Salish Sea, uh, just off from Vancouver, Canada. And uh, today is a little unseasonably warm um, for this time of year. Uh, and the leaves, though, are generally a epic range of colors from reds and yellows. And um, it's really clear that the season's changing. And um, I, for one, I do welcome this time of year uh, that there's a real transition here from a bit more of this outward summery, you know, lakes and ocean swimming beauty into a bit more of an introspective, reflective, uh, misty, mythic time of year, which I tend to find the most creative. Hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to to share in the the polarity of that and your coldness and the warmth here and um, yeah, welcoming you and and us to this exploration for us to really hear about you and this creation of the Mythic Masculine Podcast. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> you get to be on that side. So um, thank you for that. And I'm excited to share a little bit about also how I've come here. And so I'll start with that just for you, the listeners, um, to give a little background in terms of Um, how I ended up being here and sitting with Ian today uh, for this one-year anniversary of the Mythic Masculine podcast. So I had listened um, to the podcast through going down a little rabbit hole um, with a connection through seeing that you, Ian, had done some um, participation in filming for the Sacred Sons Gathering in California last year, I believe, in the fall. And I saw that you were doing a podcast and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to see what that is. You know, I'm interested in myth. I'm curious what kind of take this will be for, you know, what does that mean? You know, the masculine and what is that going to um, be able to hold in that container? And so as I listened to the first podcast, I just felt a lot of ignition, a lot of resonance, for lack of a better word, and really feeling that there was... um, an incredible container that was being built through some of the conversations that I was hearing. And in particular, um, feeling that I really enjoyed the questions that you were bringing to the people that you were, you were bringing on the show, the way that the questions were asked and the conversations that came forth were things that I feel like I was really longing for. And so I think that that's the, the gift and beauty of podcasts, of course, is that so much can be you know, through the storytelling process in the moment, um, be revealed. So that's how I I landed into listening to the podcast initially, which was, I think, um, in January of this year, around that time. Um, So perhaps, you know, just quite recently after you had launched it, um, I had found the podcast. And then you and I started connecting because I had spoken about just, you know, I wanted to express like my gratitude for, for some of the work that I was feeling was coming through and being um, revealed, you know, through listening. And so 
um, I, I believe I left you a message or, or some, or maybe you left me a message at, through Instagram and we, we just spoke about, you know, you, you just ask again, like, well, what was it? And so it was like, again, this inquiry, which I really appreciated your curiosity of like, you know, asking me the question and, and me feeling that me feeling like, oh, okay. Yeah. He's curious. He wants to know how this is affecting people. And I felt that genuine curiosity in you. And I really appreciated that. And so we've had a little bit of contact back and forth over the time, just staying in connection. Um, and I found myself, um, with a message from you, not that long ago, asking me to interview you for your one year anniversary. And so I'm curious for you. Um, yeah. How did that come about for you to ask me, for me to be the one to sit with you today? Well, I I've learned to trust my intuition or impulse. And it was actually a joke with a number of my friends here, uh, who participated in various projects, um, uh, collective projects around emergence in particular, which is a theme that I don't I haven't really touched on too much in the podcast, but it definitely is a big thread for me. Uh, but there was this joke going around that on my tombstone, maybe it would say, Ian, I have an impulse, Mackenzie, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat known for that in, in collective spaces. But for me, it's just re- trying to read the field, right? And trying to read a sense of like, okay, what's next or what, what, you know, quote wants to happen. Um, and so in some ways that, that did guide my willingness to reach out and also sensing that both your, your interest in the podcast over time and your sense of, you know, affinity and, and kinship with what was being shared, it was definitely part of it. So, you know, I felt like there's a, you, you get it on some level, what, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to be on about. Uh, as well as your own, um, I think, work that I still know some, only a little about, you know, and what you share online and, and have been impressed by uh, on your own path of, of inquiry into other realms that, again, feel very complimentary. And uh, I think last, maybe because I intuited, you have a very good radio voice. So that, <laughs> that might have been the third, the third reason. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow, thank you. Well, I think you gave me a great nudge to you were asking, like, didn't you say you were going to do a podcast? And I was like, oh, he's nudging me. Okay, yes. All right. I can feel that. So I can feel that in you as well. Like, thanks for sharing that. I can feel that that impulsivity in a positive way of like, you're nudging, you know, you're doing, you're, you're letting the, the energies and um, those impulses lead you into an intuitive place where you are bringing those through and bringing them alive. Mm -hmm. Right. So I can, I can feel that in, in just being in contact with you and in the creations that you've, um, you know, birthed and collaborated with and on so far. Um, And so I just want to mention, you know, in terms of looking at, um, you know, how you, have shared yourself and, you know, you're a filmmaker and a visionary artist and you, the way that you express, um, the intersections of your work is, is Eros emergence and village, uh, making a community. And so I'd really love to just ask you about, um, you know, what struck me when I was looking at some of this last night and feeling into this, this talk was why Eros first? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm a sucker for alliteration or something, but Eros and Emergence felt more of a nice cadence. That's part of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but also in some ways, uh, you know, I've come to recognize that energy largely through my time in a community in Portugal called Tamera, uh, which again, uh, you know, I've been working on a film as one director. There's three of us. Uh, and that one's called Love School, which is, you know, still in the works and um, hopefully dropping soon. Uh, but that community has really created a whole 
community around really a kind of mature approach to this energy of which they understand it to be like just the pure pure life energy you know the vitality of life itself and so for me um what struck me about the work they do is that in the same way that they understand eros and water to be actually very similar intelligences or very similar beings that they look to you know certain behaviors um you know let's look at we can look at violence or or destruction and yeah behaviors that the humans participate in uh and they don't see them as sort of fundamental flaws of humanity um or humans but actually the sort of improper channels for arrows to flow and so the same energy that goes to war is the same energy that could be put towards peace or you know cultivating beauty um but because when it becomes toxic when it be not when it's not given the proper channels that's the issue and so I look to Eros as that, as this kind of pure energy that needs the proper channels. And that so much of my lens has been actually a cultural lens um, because also I think I've come to recognize that the demonizing the energy itself is not helpful. You know, that it, it doesn't actually, you know, that just leads to repression or, you know, uh, suppression and all these ways in which it, it'll still come out sideways. And so for me, that's why it's it's so necessary in a way to reclaim the beauty and the power of that energy. And then emergence came through as, again, I mentioned it just prior, but what I call that is really the the sort of intelligence of life. You know, if, if Eros is like the vitality, that emergence is the is like the expression of it. And one can look to like a flock of starlings in the night sky as a sort of classic example of these birds that will move in very, you know, sort of beautiful ways of which there is no... There's nobody specifically in charge. You know, there's, no, there's no bird that's like, hey, you know, Joe, move that way and I'll, I'll go this way and, you know, don't hit each other. Like there, there's some kind of um, intelligence that's tapped into th- through the surrender into this meta-organism of which, um, you know, is a very mysterious phenomenon, but it's tracked everywhere. Um, uh, that This is what life does. Uh, and then finally, village for me is less so about a particular community. Um, and often that word can get sort of interchangeably used with community. And for some, again, it might, they might say, oh, community, yeah, you know, I, I have potlucks on Sundays and, we, you know, we got a great community. Uh, but I, that's why I like to use the word village because I actually think it's an achievement. Uh, and by that meaning, um, you know, a sort of skillful way of being in mutual solidarity with other people. Uh, and, and not only with other people, but in service to life itself. And so that's why, you know, like, like a real culture as well, I consider those achievements. And so I feel like those three elements for me are, are sort of the trifecta that has really affected my life and, and the work that I'm trying to support in bringing forth in the world. Beautiful. Yeah, those things feel like a really important segue into just a story in how the Mythic Masculine podcast was birthed. You know, how did this this vision come in? Um, you know, can you walk us through a little bit of that in terms of the beginning of that and and how this is, it, this is, is it a container for you that has allowed your own Eros to flow into? I'm, I'm curious about that as well. Like, how is it feeding you? This came about, I, I've been thinking of a podcast for a while and surprisingly, it, it actually felt a bit mysterious and, and confusing, like from a technical perspective. So for the, it's actually for the longest time, I, was, I actually was um, kind of like, well, I don't know if I should because I don't quite know how it works or where, you know, where is it hosted? Or, you know, this is coming from, I spent many years as a, as a web developer, you know, in my early 20s. So it's not like I'm a stranger to technology, but some reason I couldn't wrap my head around it. And so 
Uh, it took uh, a couple like one-offs episodes, which I did over in a few years, just because I, I recognized that, you know, like even though I've been a filmmaker for many years, like about 13 years now, um, I also recognize that, you know, I've, I've really appreciated writing um, as well as other mediums, you know, poetry, where I feel like the medium is the best way to express the thing that wants to be said. Um, and in, so in that sense, it's sometimes hard for me to even think of it myself as a filmmaker, which is why I use the term visionary artist, because the medium changes, you know, like most artists, I think, you know, the medium is somewhat secondary to the, what they're trying to say. Um, and it can be deeply relevant, of course, to the, to what they're trying to say. Um, so for me, the podcast became, on the one hand, this desire to have longer conversations around certain topics, you know, like it is for, for many. I recorded an episode a number of years ago prior to this around relationships. It was around radical relationships. And, um, you know, that was, it was kind of fun to do that and, and to be um, able to have the space to dive deep. And then uh, a little while later, I did one actually with a sort of a queer gender activist around the mythopoetic men's movement, um, of which I have released actually recently on the, on the network as a bonus episode. Um, but that was, again, an opportunity to dive deep, just naturally came from an encounter I had with this acquaintance. And she was sort of had written a piece that challenged the mythopoetic movement. So I was like, okay, let's have a conversation about it. So it felt natural to do it. And so this latest incarnation, though, of the kind of full podcast came about because uh, I had a friend uh, or more of an acquaintance artist that I knew a number of years ago from university. And uh, her and her partner actually were completing a film uh, a documentary on the the Canadian academic Jordan Peterson, of which you know he's gained quite a degree of prominence um, over the last few years. Uh, the listener probably recognizes him as I mean initially coming on the scene because of sort of a, um, a a battle over using gender pronouns, um, of which his issue was that the school wanted to say mandate to the use of gender pronouns, and he wasn't he didn't he didn't quote mind people using them or being asked to use them but he didn't feel it was okay to mandate them because for him it was this sort of i don't know slide from there to communist gulags or something like it was you know he he felt it was the hill to to die on kind of thing and anyway it sparked a national debate that spilled over um you know and and they did a film actually which i thought was a really beautifully balanced film considering the subject matter and he himself has gotten a lot of notoriety since then you know, I think later on, a few years later, this is a couple years ago now, but Time Magazine might have called him like the most influential academic in the Western world, right? So he's gone quite quite big. Um, anyway, so we talked about the film though, because I was really curious to use a mythological lens to understand both how he sees the world, because he employs a lot of Jungian archetypal uh, imagery, I understand, in his, his teachings, as well as his writings and and. Uh, that the filmmakers themselves were curious because they were looking at he him himself in the culture like what was who was he as an archetypal figure in the culture and so for me that was actually why I thought it was a really compelling conversation and in some sense by the time I finished that episode I was like oh well I kind of need a podcast to like publish it because again I could have just done it as a one-off but I really felt like there was something more here and so then it just sort of sparked hey wait a second what if I just kept rolling with these kinds of things and I think the initial title I'd considered was, um, I think, The Mythic Man or something like that. And I actually, I posted on Facebook uh, and I just asked friends, like, hey, what do you think about this? And uh, it was actually a, another friend, uh, Marie, who wrote, actually said, what do you, or she just wrote The Mythic Masculine. She's like, what about that? And I was like, yeah, that's it. Uh, and then from there, I just, I sort of felt that impulse, you know, the the erotic impulse of keep going, you know, keep going. And um, soon enough, you know, I'd reached out to a number of friends 
initially who I felt thought could say something interesting around this subject matter. And um, I was surprised, you know, how one, how fun it, they are actually to do the conversations, you know, like uh, this question of, you know, for me as an artist too, when I work on a film, it can take years, right? Until it's complete. Um, uh, whereas this was a pretty quick turnaround depending on, you know, the time of the recording and the publishing. Uh, as well, a big shift for me was, you know, as a as a documentary filmmaker, I'm typically not, you can't hear me when I'm doing interviews, right? Like you only see the subject. And, and the, in some sense, the filmmaker's invisible unless, uh, you know, like Werner Herzog or something where he's very much a character, you know, in his films. Uh, but that's not the style I typically do. So the big shift for me from publishing was actually now people would hear me, right? And in some sense, I actually had to modulate the the way I'd ask questions, you know, a little differently because in some sense, you know, people would hear that. So that was initially a, a sort of tonal shift, I feel. Uh, and then I had some great um, mentorship actually from another friend, uh, Eamon Armstrong is the Life is a Festival podcast. And he, he'd he been doing that for, I think, at least six months or more. And so I tapped him, you know, for some uh, some advice. And that was helpful too, that he gave me some kind of pointers. And, um, and since then, yeah, I've just sort of kept saying yes. Awesome. And so in continuing to say yes, I'm curious, as I had asked a little earlier, and I was kind of doubled onto the question, but has this been, do you see this as a place where your Eros is able to flow like this? Has this opened more of you to you through this exploration of the Mythic Masculine podcast and, and opening your voice in this way? Because what I hear you saying also is like your voice really coming out and being front and center also. Um, I know for a lot of us, you know, we have stuff around speaking and voice and, you know, bringing our voices out. So what's that been like for you um, to to move into that and to speaking and bringing your voice out? Yeah, thanks. You know, at this time, I guess what last November, uh, I had spent at least for a number of years, I had been spending more time on stages, largely because of film screenings and then Q&As and things, you know, after the film screenings. Um, I, I had made a conscious decision a number of years ago, probably around 2012 or 2013, that typically I was not you know, on stage much at all. You know, like aside from I think back in grade four or something, I was in a play. I was actually asked to be uh, the the kind of I think it was the Wizard of Oz, but I was the kid reading the book. So I, I was kind of on stage at the, you know the beginning and and in pajamas, and it was this kind of you know it was a, it was a significant role I suppose at the time. Uh, but what was fascinating is a little later, or maybe a while later, around my say teens, maybe late teens, I remember somebody had gave me feedback. I don't know if it was a teacher or something, but they basically had said I wasn't I wasn't that great a speaker. Which I mean, that's how I interpreted it, and and it wasn't so much necessarily like you know don't do it, but it was it was in some ways I think it was meant to be encouraging um, to to develop that further, and it just struck me that. You know, at a young age, I think people, at least teachers, identified that I could enunciate pretty well for, uh, certainly for that age, and which is why I was picked as this, um, you know, the, the reader from on this stage play. Uh, and then later to feel, oh, maybe I hadn't really developed it and, and somewhat lost a certain coherency, right? And uh, and so it took a conscious effort, uh, as I said, probably like early 30s to to really step up and even to say yes if people asked, right? Like, hey, can you speak about this subject or you know, um, after a film screening, like I said, to spend a bit more time. And that, so that was a conscious decision. And so to come on the podcast though, definitely was now like a next iteration of that, uh, where I also felt like I had 
some sense a duty or an obligation to the listener to, in a way, stand in for them, right? Because, you know, in some sense, the listener is passive in that, you know, they can't interject in a, in a conversation live. Um, but in some sense, I think they rely upon the, um, the, the host to ask questions that they may be intuiting, right? And then maybe they want to ask. And, and a good host, I think, can intuit that also and, and ask on their behalf uh, in some ways. And so, yeah, that's been very satisfying to, to, to feel that level of depth. Um, and I'll say in terms of this, you know, Eros question, for me, like, I really feel there's a way in which the conversations lead to very surprising um, uh, levels of inquiry, which, you know, I, I will give a shout out to the Orphan Wisdom School uh, with Stephen Jenkinson, of which I've been for a number of years now, back in uh, 20, 2012, actually, when I first met Stephen. And um, he has one who demonstrated a level of, I would call like disciplined wonder, which, uh, you know, again, I saw modeled over and over again in the school, which in a way isn't so much about getting the right answer, you know, so much as sort of like, which happens a lot in school, you know, you sort of train to get the right answer, but more like, can you wonder in such a way that you, you, you arrive at surprising, um, in surprising places, right? And, and hopefully even, you know, thoughts you've never thought before or things you've never spoken before. And that to me is like, that's the most exciting thing. And I feel like, you know, when, when in conversations, if we get to those places, I'm astounded, uh, you know, that, that that's something that is in the collaboration between myself and the other. In particular, you know, with bio, for example, at Komalafe, when we were chatting about, you know, what is this wound, this deep wound at the heart of patriarchy? And, you know, we got to some places, particularly around this sense of the, you know, there's no village for them to come home to. Right, which archetypally just you know detonated me, um, and was such a place that you know neither of us I think would have got to if we just you know were just wondering about it ourselves. And so I feel again and again in the conversations to me like that's the most exciting thing and also the most affirming thing about why these conversations feel helpful to this time. Um, that you know even like Pat McCabe for example, the Indigenous grandmother, you know I, I just had the intuition to ask her at the beginning if she would offer a blessing. Uh, in, you know, an invocation into the interview. And, you know, most men who, who hear that, uh, they end up, you know, weeping like uh, pretty quick because, you know, they didn't know, like I didn't either, that how powerful it would be to basically feel seen by this grandmother, you know, that this was actually a deep need when so much of the world and so much of the climate, it feels like is basically saying men are terrible, you know, be less terrible is the best you can do. Um, so this was a completely other um, something that was such a gift. And again, I feel like the conversations that just arrive in these places are just profound for me and the listener. So Ian, just curious if you'd share with the listeners, um, what parts of yourself have you edited out of the Ian that we see and hear in these conversations? Well, I, one of the benefits of having editing is that you can redo certain takes you know, and in the interviews themselves, um, you know, I typically don't retake much um, or the the uh, guest as well. Like we, we tend to be, you know, pretty clear with one take. Um, that's the take. Um, and at the same time, you know, some of the intro outros, yeah, there'll be you know, a lot of times when I'll still kind of be waking up in the morning or, or flub the line or something. And so, yeah, I I'd end up redoing it a number of times. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things I've really tried to do is is both find my own voice as 
which is authentic. Um, I feel authentic to me, authentic to um, just what's true in my emotional body and all the rest. But then also have a certain enunciation, enunciation, and, and sort of precision, you know, with language. That it's kind of funny that you know there's this dance between those two because I, I I feel like I know in myself when I have a bit more of like the podcast voice, right? That I I, I sort of <laughs> I sort of put on because um, I feel like this is now the episode and I'm talking to you uh, versus a bit more of a conversational style of which some other podcasters I really appreciate because of that's how they typically do their intros. So yeah, so I'd say there's a, there's a line there that I'm still trying to find um, and, and I want to feel connective, you know, with the listener um, and authentic. And I'd say, you know, maybe people get this or people give me this feedback or they maybe less so more recently, but in the past, I think there's a sense of me being, I don't know, very serious a lot of the time. Uh, maybe because some of the topics tend to be, you know, more serious, uh, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I'm actually pretty playful, you know, that those closer to me, I think, would, would attest, especially with, you know, my two-year-old, you know, very encouraging to get into more playful spaces and, and sort of find that, you know, that inner inner child once again. So um, I don't know if that necessarily would come across in my in my podcast but certainly i try to find those spaces and you know daniel the network community manager as well you know the more that we also kind of like joke around um you know probably on the side someday we might develop a uh, like a comedy sketch troupe around men's work because we've got a number of good ideas i think cooking um which may see the light of day at some point and then people would know you know i'm actually kind of funny that's beautiful yeah, I love hearing that. And also just that play, like that lightness, what that brings in and, um, you know, the spirit of play being so powerful. So that's lovely to hear about you as well. And um, some other inquiries from the community as well. Um, just so, uh, the question of what were your personal heartbreaks and or personal recognitions about the lack of culture around you that caused you to see the need for such a podcast? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big, big question. <laughs> um, and I'm grateful for it. You know, I think so much of the absence of culture, um, it, it, it's not apparent unless you're in a way trained to see the absence. And I, I shared a little vignette I wrote one time a couple years ago around, I somehow made this connection between black holes um, where Actually, one of my first documentaries was called uh, One Week Job, which was about a friend who did 52 jobs in a year. Um, and b- actually, here's a good connection. Um, one job was he was invited to be an astronomer in, in Hawaii. And, uh, and so we, we went and I, was, I recorded you know, his journey there. And I think I remember, if I, if, hopefully I remember this accurately, but you know, astronomers, when they perceive black holes, you can't see the black hole. You can only see the way light and things like bend around it, right? And so I think by inference, I suppose, or, or you know, calculations, they can say, oh, look, there's a black hole there because of everything else that they see. And I made this connection one day around, to me, this is what the absence of culture is or the absence of village, let's say, is all of the kind of like mm, neuroses and trauma or unhealed trauma, I should say, um, all of the like behaviors that often get pinned on humans, right? And say, oh, humans, what are you going to do? Or humans are just terrible. Um, Or men are just this way. Or, you know, I'm flawed. Or like all of these ways in which these things show up. 
um, for me, when I started to see through the grace of good teachers and through you know my time in, in a village structure, um, like Tamara in Portugal, I started to recognize, oh, it's the absence of this thing that, you know, it's like you can't see it though unless you've been guided to see its absence for so many. Because, you know, I speak now of just ones who haven't grown up in this structure, which in modern culture, right, is, is so many of us. And so I feel like that granted me the capacity to see, oh yeah, unless we're willing to have a sense and to speak to that absence in a meaningful way, then the conversations, all the questions will be incorrect, right? They'll be essentially looking at the individual as essentially, yeah, like that they're the problem. Um, that, you know, like for me, for example, like a lot of personal growth work that comes out, you know, with, I don't know, you know, keep digging and heal yourself and, uh, or even like abundance, you know, seek the abundance codes and, and this kind of, you know, like manifestation, like all these kind of things to me. They're coming, I believe, from, again, the same absence, but they seem like liberation often to at least people that are, you know, bound in them. But, you know, I've been granted too to, you know, meet people who are, you know, pretty well off, you know, in terms of financially or, you know, this phrase I found one, one recently um, coming across, um, location independent, uh, which was used to describe people that... Uh, are, are sort of free from the system. You can flow wherever they want from Bali to Australia or, you know, to, to wherever. Um, and that, that, that was celebrated, right? Those, those people in that group celebrate that typically. I was kind of one of those for a time, you know, my sort of late twenties, I worked for a travel network. Um, I produced all their, or sort of kickstarted their video, um, the video platform. And I was able to go to a lot of places, you know, a lot of countries. I mean, I probably visited, I don't know, 50 or 60, you know, over, five or six years. And, you know, I'd meet these people that uh, I would say, you know, had big travel blogs or, you know, big followers and things. And I felt like I detected such a level of loneliness, you know, within them. And, and, you know, it was on the surface though. It was glamorous and it was so cool. And look at me, oh, you know, I'm headed this, you know, next country. And, you know, and I guess what I recognized too in that loneliness was, you know, Steve from Orphan Wisdom again, you know, he had this really beautiful articulation he said one time. But he said, uh, in, uh, he had this formula. He said, first generation trauma, second generation God. Now, that could, I could spend a lot of time unpacking that. Um, but what, how I see that is essentially um, this idea that you know, so many of us in ancestrally were dislocated from our our lands, right? And if we're talking about Northern Europe, of course, there's, uh, you can track a lot of the consequence from Rome and, and beyond. You know, I have family from Ireland as well and a big diaspora from the famine. Um, I mean, not my direct lineage from the famine, but as well, that certainly impacted the country and still does. There's so much, right, that is still kind of rolling through uh, the, the peoples and certainly as well, you know, in North America. And so, this idea that location independent is something now to seek is, is an understanding that, oh, you know, to be from nowhere, essentially, used to be the most, the worst thing that could possibly happen, right? Because, you, you know, you, you wouldn't have a location, you wouldn't belong anywhere. And to me, I understand it, you know, to be indigenous is actually to belong somewhere. But, you know, leave it to the modern ability to sort of, you know, commodify or, or glamorize anything. And suddenly location independent, hey, that's the ticket, right? You can be from anywhere, and and what a what a great thing that is, and so again, that's what I feel I encountered with this deep sense of loneliness in those people that that had achieved that, 
And so again, I use that as just as one other example of, you know, unless you understand what the absence of culture actually is, then you, you, again, the questions aren't correct. Like they don't really name the thing that's missing. And so for me, again, I feel like this is what's happened with masculinity, that so many of the questions and the, the frames and the labels around masculinity, particularly like toxic masculinity, you know, I think they're, they're helpful insofar as they obviously name a kind of like deep-seated structural oppression or direct, you know, cultural trespass, you know, all of these behaviors that are, that are you know, have to stop, certainly. And at the same time, I just feel like it, it, there's nowhere for masculinity to go within that frame other than simply um, sort of like try to do less harm. You know what I mean? And, and I see the same model, I'll, maybe I'll end with this, is this, I would call the, the age of the Anthropocene, you know, the age of man, really as a kind of um, um, deep-seated uh, misanthropy right, which is essentially the hatred of humans, um, right, at its core. And so people that have a kind of cynical look at humans, right, like, oh, humans, we're terrible, you know, look what we're doing, we're churning up the planet, we're destroying the biosphere, um, we're, you know, we're just kind of awful, that it's it's not really an achievement, you know, to be, to be um, cynical about humanity. Um, but at the same time, you, that frame doesn't let you differentiate between not all humans are like that. And in fact, you know, humans that actually have culture don't see themselves that way as, as essentially a blight on the planet, that the only thing we can do is just less harm, right? That's the best that humans can do, just less harm. Um, you know, thankfully, yeah, a lot of people don't think that way. Um, and they have corresponding cultural mythologies and ways of being, which which don't collude with that, right? So, so for me, really, that's what the aim of the podcast was, was like, look, there's way better conversations we could be having around masculinity and particularly looking to myth um, and to, to real culture to bring other better questions, better wonderings into the conversation. And, and I feel like we've done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like you are doing that. And I'm curious in your life right now, just what part does Village have? What does that look and feel like for you? Yeah. How much time you got? <laughs> you know, I will say that, again, going back to my time in Samara, um, again, because in some ways I feel it's the most, um, uh, well, experiential um, time that I've had in, in what I would call a living, truly living village. Um, and, and at the same time, coming from a sort of Northern European uh, uh, ancestry, that they themselves are largely comprised of Germans. Um, although they have somewhat of an international community, but but largely Germans who migrated from Germany to have to build this community in southern Portugal, uh, and so there there's something about this I don't know kinship at least ancestrally right which which really had an effect on me of of almost being able to really feel a sense of well what might this have been you know for for my people way back. Um, and, and again, showing a lot of the intelligence that comes with that way of, of living together, which again, meets like so many needs that are impossible to be met, you know, in this consumer fragmented culture. And so, yeah, I really felt awoke, awake, awakened in that mm, sense of a you know, need to, to, to serve this, right? And um, I'll say, having now spent a number of years trying to, you know, quote, make village, it is really difficult. Yeah, it is really difficult. And I, I can name a number of key things that I feel that are in the way. Um, one thing that's in the way is the story of the one. 
And, you know, when I say the one, most people would have a sense of what that means, right? The story of the one true love. Because, again, going back to this ancestral thing, that, you know, if, if we live in such a way that we don't really have, you know, deep relation, deep relationship with land, specific land with, with a wider, you know, realm of people than just simply the blood family, you know, if that, that there's this sense of needing to belong somewhere, right? And without that bigger vessel in which to belong, that it we look to partnership, we look to like the one-on-one romantic idealism to be that sense of belonging. And many people will say this in partnership, right? They'll say, wow, you know, I feel like home when I'm with that person or, you know, this sense that it makes sense why that would be because it's the only other option, right? When we don't have an actual place um, and, and a deep relationship to land. And so I've seen this many times where in, in you know, village attempts that people will, insofar as they can, you know, put the effort in and keep showing up, generally it happens until they find somebody who they think is the one. And by and large, they split off and become their own little nuclear bubble. And and there we go. There we go. You know, and because there's a promise there of and a conditioning that this is a, the ideal scenario. So that's a big deal. And I, and I think a lot of people actually need to burn through that story before they're actually willing to see, oh, actually, there's something else that is more important. Not deep partnership, though. This is the key piece, too, right? Some people hear this and they say, what are you saying? Like, you're not for deep partnership? And I'm like, no, actually, I'm for a deeper partnership. But it doesn't transact on this unconscious desire to find belonging and the one in another person. Because, you know, we have so many things that can't be healed in a a relationship like that. That's another thing I think I've come to understand is that, you know, you'll just ping pong a lot of your trauma wounds off each other uh, and, and often inflicted upon your children, you know, because they're the closest human beings, you know, to you and, um, the need to have other trusted adults to hold a larger container in order to move through things is, is like absolutely vital, which is again, what I saw demonstrated at Tamara. Um, so that's another piece. I mean, and the third thing is the real kind of fear of losing oneself to some kind of, I don't know, collective amorphous, um, something, right? Like uh, maybe it's a more of a North American thing. Um, but there's deep, need to be an individual, right? Uh, with a capital I. And in some sense, I found again and again that people would, they'd have this deep-seated fear of like, well, if I participate in this way, or if we really put the effort in and come up with a shared meal plan, you know, so we eat together, or, you know, if we really um, need to, I don't know, shift our room structures. And so, you know, I don't get the room that I want, or like, as soon as the personal preference thing kicked in, um, oftentimes for people, they wouldn't, they would, that's where it stopped because there was this fear that, well, if I don't assert and get the thing that I really need, you know, according to my personal preference, then I'm not, I won't get fed or, you know, I won't get the room I want or I won't get blah, blah, blah. And what I found that generally in the times that we did, um, so by the way, I should say that I have participated in sort of collective experimentation the last three, three, four years. And so this is coming now from direct experience that what I found was the more that people were willing to actually do it and participate in these shared rhythms, like to feed that third thing in a meaningful way, the more that their actual needs would be met. Like that actual place of the deeper nourishment that they didn't know they actually needed, right? Because the the fear of losing oneself to the collective is is real in the sense of also, I think it touches an ancestral wound, right? Like this, again, the sense of not having anyone um, in that way, or maybe even the like the loss of village through you know, plunder or through um, many calamities, you know, befalling the their people that there is this deep fear, you know, it's the, it's the thing that a lot of people say they want, 
But then when they get close, it's the thing that's most terrifying because you could get hurt again, right? Yeah, and if you think, that, you know, losing a, a relationship, you know, or marriage, which I did, um, is is challenging, and it was, uh, that the the possible loss of a, a village, like to belong somewhere again and to lose that is something that most people wouldn't go near. So can you share with us some of your imaginings of what you do feel and see as possible as we move forward together uh, collectively into these visions? What do you see as possible in relationship to village making? Yeah, I know it's a really interesting question because it's in some ways it's it's hard to respond in any specific way, you know, so much as what I'm wondering about, right? Yeah, and you know, what does it take to make real culture again? And on the one hand, you know, we, a lot of us growing up in modern universality in a way, right, have this sense that we need to have a, a sort of one r- culture to rule them all, you know, which in some ways is is a bit of a hangover from monotheism, right? That that oh, we, we have to come up to, to combat a universalist um, kind of calamity, um, which is where everything, all diverse cultures are sort of subsumed over time to modernity. You know, it's why you can go to a, a restaurant, you know, a chain in New York and in Italy, and, it, you know, basically looks exactly the same, um, that there's some kind of homogenization, right, has happened um, to culture. And so on the one hand, then how do we create a response that is effective enough? And so, you know, it can be easy to go to another universalist response, Right, which often happens with the crowd that wants to maybe loosely called new age or or unity consciousness or these kinds of things often can feel a bit um, uh, missing the need for diversity that is place specific right because I do think i've been I've come to understanding that all real culture is place specific right so in that sense it necessar- necessarily has to be um, distinct and sure that I think there's a degree of shared values that that the cultures have that, again, have a certain orientation to life. Um, so that's one piece, is like, how do we basically create en masse or, or invoke en masse a cultural response that is both um, has a shared value set, but also is distinct to, to specific places? Um, as well as, um, you know, I really think in a kind of mimetic way, um, and memes, it's sort of short form for memes, right? And some people think of memes and they think of, you know, funny cat video that races around the internet. And that, that I guess is one way, right? Um, but I feel I've really been obsessed with this idea of, you know, how do we consciously, um, in a way, pollinate the noosphere, right? The noosphere is the sort of name given to the to the, the realm of global consciousness, right? There is some degree of interconnected consciousness, um, you know, through the internet, um, but probably through dreams and other ways in which, you know, again, we are connected. And so I've been really curious about how to like consciously pollinate, as I said, with specific memes. Um, and, you know, the mythic masculine is one, as well as my other film projects, right? Like a number of years ago, I did a film called Sacred Economics based on the book by Charles Eisenstein. And again, for me, that was very consciously trying to bring forth that transmission from the book that Charles wrote into a medium like a short film, which could then be shared and, and sort of activate people around the world. And I think it did actually, and has, and um, the amount of, you know, the wake from that has been profound, actually. It still is that people will say, yeah, you know, I saw that film and it totally shifted something in me. Um, So, you know, again, I think we're in this emergent moment, which is also why I've been really interested in emergence, because 
for me, it's not a top-down response to the the moment we're in. Like, I think the top-down model is inherently limited because it's it's sort of a power over um, based on a hierarchy, right? And and so you know, it may be helpful to run armies that way and corporations, but it's not very helpful, I don't think, to create like a large-scale, you know, diverse yet unified response to the specific challenges that each place has. And so I do see a kind of emphasis on decentralization, but also connection um, in in our response, much like the starlings, you know, and how they move across the night sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in this next bit of time with the Mythic Masculine podcast, um, where do you feel the direction of this energy wants to go? I have been really profoundly affected actually by how how the Mythic Masculine Network has grown around the podcast that, you know, again, it came from a sense that people would write me and say, Hey, you know, I really was moved by that interview. And I wonder how best, how, how can I integrate it? Or how can I, you know, work more deeply with the themes? And so the experiment was, okay, let's, let's open up a mighty network, you know, like, like many seem to be doing and experimenting. And I was really surprised by how many people came in and were really, you know, impressed and, and affected and, and wanted to stick around. Uh, and so I've really been in this listening, you know, with what what the community is asking for, also as a as a tracking of that emergent need. And so you know that the, currently we're we're operating under this rhythm, this weekly rhythm of practices and wonderings, and you know, film screenings and themes that we release every new moon around, like walking the members through like a specific journey, right? Sort of offering the skills of of seeing mythopoetically and speaking mythopoetically and so that's really been a key aspect of i think these early months and then i think also what's emerging though is this desire to create or to build the capacity for more ritual space again within the context of this cultural conversation and so you know that edge is still emerging of what that might mean Um, but at the same time yeah i do feel like you know, it's the difference between, say, like a master plan community where, you know, I remember, I think I read some story a while ago about maybe Dubai or something, right, where, you know, they 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 have the benefit, you know, in quotations of a lot of money and that they can essentially like master plan and build this entire, you know, suburb. Uh, and then from there, they invite people to buy. And I remember reading one story of it was saying this community that was like master planned was like nobody wanted to live there. Uh, you know, when they got there, because they were like, no, this feels artificial, it's just weird. And and then there was this other area where it was maybe understood to be more of a slum, or at least something that was, you know, quote, less desirable. But I, I understood that so many of these older communities, um, or say unplanned communities are often, they follow a certain human, you know, human unfolding based on actual need, right? That, that there are certain ways in which streets curve because of the lay of the land or because somebody you know is to live there or some merchant or you know there's just ways in which it grew organically would maybe the way i would say it um over time and so it, it resembles something that's much more alive um versus these sort of artificial landscapes that you know sound good or look good on paper but you know people get there and they often don't want to live there so i feel like the network is very similar in that you know we're not really racing ahead to master plan where it will go but i i feel like kind of listening and responding to to the needs and the curiosities of the people who are there and then sort of building out the next phase 
inviting in the next phase um, from that place, from that from that real need and from that listening. So again, I mean, ask me like six months from now, you know, I'd be <laughs> I'd probably be very surprised where where it's going to go. Um, and um, but I'm highly encouraged by the people that are there and the level of conversation, the level of depth that we've been able to reach, you know, through through this online space is profound. It is. Yeah, I will say just in participation, um, my own participation and exploration of the space um, of the network has been really beautiful to, to just see the the voices and the conversations and the wonderings that are happening there. And I love how well curated it is and it has enough space in that curation to also really invite a lot of different self-expression and ways of us to tap into many different um, relevant you know, ways of exploring these very important topics that we've been speaking about today, like these incredible aspects of, you know, culture building and really going at it with a curiosity, you know, and those questions are laid out for all of us to, to really dig deep and to also offer, you know, of ourselves. So I feel that as being such a incredible part of, you know, the village making process to open space for those voices to be heard as well. And so thank you for that. And as we close or come to a close here, is there anything else that you want to share in reflection of the last year of this creation and birthing process of the Mythic Masculine podcast? Yes. And what I want to do though, actually, is if you'll permit me to pause for a second. Mm-hmm. Sorry, don't don't pause. Let's just go. Yeah. What I want to mm-hmm. do, what I want to do is actually um just bring up Oh, maybe I'll just do this. Uh, basically, what I want to do is name the musician that is the music on the podcast. Mm, okay. Yeah, so a bit more of the... There. I'm just going to open up the drive. I just want to give him a, give him a shout out because it's a, sort of one of the characteristic um, symphonies of, of the space or of the, of the podcast, so... Yeah. Um I'll get I'll 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 respond to it as soon as it loads up on my drive here and then I can yeah, pull it up. Uh here we go. It's like frame drumming in the beginning, yeah. Um Sounds oh, like. the very beginning? Yeah. Um what's well, a person? Let me just make sure I got the right. Okay. Oop. Oops, there there it was. Oh shoot. Yeah, I just want to make sure I got him his last name. Uh Max. Oh, it just goes by Max H. Okay, cool. Um, thanks, Max H. Okay, so I'll, I'll I'll get us back into there. Um, giving a shout out. Yes, before we close, I would love to give a shout out of appreciation, actually, to the uh, soundtrack, uh, the opening track of the podcast, of which I found um, searching quite a quite a while, you know, to try to find the right the right sound I wanted to invoke, the right emotion. And uh, the artist goes by the name Max H. And the track that uh, opens most of the podcast is called Follow the Wild Path. And uh, it's a beautiful, um, beautiful offering there. And uh, he has quite a catalog as well of amazing music, of which I've used, I think, one or two others on some of the bonus episodes as well. But there's something in it that really provokes a kind of mythic um, mythic invitation. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, and maybe the other thing I wanted to share was, you know, the, the, the whole tone though, the, 
the kind of misty forest element, which I, I tend to use on a lot of the, like on the Facebook and uh, I think even on the network itself. You know, again, going back to this question about um, this this relation to land and culture coming from land. And I will say that that, I mean, that specific image actually isn't from this area, although it's a very similar ecosystem, um, the sort of misty, misty trees. And I think right at the very beginning, you know, I was saying that we're actually headed into that time again um, here where I am. Uh, and that, that, that whole evocative um, imagery actually did come, though. What happened was uh, Daniel and I were, were co-hosting uh, a, men's, a men's retreat, um, which we actually called the Mythic Men's Weekend. Um, which was uh, again happening sort of early days in the podcast, and uh, at one point the the mist actually rolled in. We were doing some outdoor work with the in the warrior archetype, and uh, where I am on the land is just a beautiful area. Um, in some ways, isolated, um, but but there's beautiful trees in the sort of upper uh, upper mountain, one of the mountains here, and the the fog rolled in just like incredibly. And it you know it does from time to time, but in that moment it, it was like beyond you know mythic and that really characterized that moment for us uh, and in some ways then spilled over and, and captured I think the tone um, of the, the podcast itself. And so in some sense, I do want to almost like name and bind that, that, you know, it wasn't just invented because of a good, you know, wanted a cool brand identity, but that the, <laughs> that, uh, that whole imagery actually comes from the place speaking here. Mm. Uh, and I feel so much of that does inform, um, you know, the conversations in my capacity to, to wonder about these things in a certain way. And like I said, I mean, at the end of the day, like that is the the foundation of everything. You know, she is the foundation of everything. And the more that we can get more specific, the more that we can fall in love with where we are, you know, in a meaningful way, the more that we can be in reciprocity, like true reciprocity. You know, again, like that'll inform so much of, you know, quote, what are we supposed to be doing? Because I, I do think part of the challenges that we face, you know, modern modernity itself is largely an abstract kingdom. Um, you know, that, that it's not really bound to place because often it sees itself as, again, location independent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that it can sort of enforce and um, monoculture and, you know, kind of do what it wants wherever the place is. And that's seen as a great achievement, um, you know, instead of actually a great loss um, to actually be in the relationship to place. And so, you know, if maybe a last invitation for the listener would be to, yeah, to look at really where they are and and can they fall in love more deeply with that place and what is the language of that place of of her, the, you know what is her love language of that place and and you know begin to mm, to make a, a kind of courtship towards her in a more meaningful way mm, yes to that yeah thank you for that inquiry and what a huge question for us to all continue to ask and hold together collectively Thank you, Ian. Thank you so much for being here and showing up for your one year and honoring you and all that you have created and birthed this last year through the Mythic Masculine podcast, as well as the network and looking forward to more. And thanks so much for your time, Lisa. really appreciate your willingness to say yes and to conduct this interview and be in the hot seat. (laughs) Yep. You got, you got, you got me moving through all kinds of good stuff. So thank you. It's wonderful to step into just the newness of it all. And that's what we're doing, right? That's what we're doing. Yeah. Well, to be continued. To be continued. Thank you for listening to this special anniversary episode of The Mythic Masculine. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider joining the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate place, and we'd love to have you join. Visit network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member.